That's what God can do in our life. And that's what He often does. He brings these situations, these unpleasant, these painful, these difficult situations into our life because that's the context in which we become willing to examine our heart in hard ways. Daniel chapter 4 is where we are. We have a fantastic passage of Scripture to turn to this morning. We are to chapter 4, so that puts us just a little bit over halfway through our trek through the first seven chapters of Daniel. We find that chapter 4 is very unique. In fact, it is probably the most unique passage in the Scriptures in that it appears to be written to us by a pagan. So Nebuchadnezzar appears to be the author of chapter chapter 4 in the sense that it is written as a letter to Daniel's readers by Nebuchadnezzar. So I guess it's possible that Daniel wrote this and wrote it from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar as though he was writing what Nebuchadnezzar would say if Nebuchadnezzar were writing this. But the natural reading is just to read it as though Nebuchadnezzar wrote it, which makes it a very unique passage of Scripture. As we talked about before, this is the only book of our Bible that has this much Aramaic in it. Ezra has a little bit of Aramaic, but Daniel is more than half Aramaic. And of course, chapter 4 is one of those chapters that's written in Aramaic. And chapter 4 appears to be written to us by a pagan. Now, at the end of the chapter, we have some questions to answer as we've asked these questions kind of all along. And that question is, this guy Nebuchadnezzar, what's his deal? Because God seems to be dealing with him and repeatedly... He glorifies God. He recognizes the existence of the true living God. And he recognizes the power, even the supreme power of the true living God. So we've asked the question, what's up with Nebuchadnezzar's heart? Is he a converted man or will he be converted? At the end of chapter 4, there is some evidence that many people seem to say will lead us to believe that Nebuchadnezzar is converted by the experiences of chapter 4. So I'm going to cut to the chase and go ahead and tell you the end so that we have that in mind as we work through it. Nebuchadnezzar is still a pagan. He is still an unbeliever. So Nebuchadnezzar is not converted at the end of chapter 4. So that leaves us with an entire chapter of Scripture written to us by one who is not one of God's children. So that would testify to us of the magnificent power of God. He not only uses his people to write his words, but he can even use a pagan to write his words to us. So Daniel chapter 4 changes the pace just a little bit for us. We have been accustomed to a certain pattern in chapter 1, 2, and 3. And the pattern is this. There arises this danger, this threat against the children of God, the Daniel and his three Hebrew friends. God delivers them from that threat and they glorify God and Nebuchadnezzar glorifies God and then elevates the Hebrew children or in Daniel in each episode. So there's this elevation, this promotion, this accolade, followed by this deliverance from the danger. So that's been the pattern through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, three times. The chapter or the pattern is broken this time because there is no threat or danger, at least not to God's children. There is no threat to God's children. In fact, the entire chapter centers upon Nebuchadnezzar. The chapter is all about Nebuchadnezzar and God's dealing with him. We've made note of the fact that there is no other pagan king. In fact, there's no other pagan in all of Scripture with whom God deals with more than Nebuchadnezzar. 
Last week we noted the, the parallels between Nebuchadnezzar and the Antichrist, and we saw that he was clearly the forerunner of the Antichrist. He was a prototype of the Antichrist. I won't go back through all those parallels that we saw last week. But Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the Antichrist. He's a forerunner. He's the first Antichrist, so to speak. And being the first Antichrist, it's interesting to us that God deals with him so extensively in these first four chapters. But after chapter four, we're done with our friend Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to exit the story at the end, and he's going to do it in typical Nebuchadnezzar, big grand fashion. So with all that being said, let's begin with chapter one. We won't take the time to read through the chapter first before we begin working through it. We'll just sort of dive in because it's a little bit of a lengthy chapter. But as we turn to chapter four and verse one, the first thing that we need to notice is that about 30 years have passed since the end of chapter three. So Nebuchadnezzar, put this picture in your mind of Nebuchadnezzar now as an elderly man, white beard, white hair, elderly man, kind of, kind of, he's at the end of his life, the end of his rule. This is about 30 years after the fiery furnace experience, give or take. We don't know exactly, but that's about there. So Daniel would be about middle-aged right now. You can picture in your mind, uh, me in 20 years. That's what Daniel kind of looks like in the, in the passage. Nebuchadnezzar though is white beard, old fella at the sunset of his life, so to speak. So now let's begin with that being said, let's begin with verse one. Chapter 4 and verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages. So the first thing that I noticed was that that is the very same proclamation, the same address as we read back in chapter 3, verse 7, when Nebuchadnezzar was addressing the people that would bow to the statue that was him. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, All peoples, nations, languages, you will bow to the statue that's me. Here he makes a similar proclamation. This one is to all peoples, nations, and languages, but the proclamation is this. Peace be multiplied to you. Verse 2, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So Nebuchadnezzar says, it, it seems like a good idea that I write this down to show you the signs and wonders that God, the Most High God, has done for me. Now Nebuchadnezzar has seen the mighty works and the wonders, the signs of God. He has seen them, chapter 1, the deliverance from the food challenge thing, the vision that God sent to him in chapter 2, the supernatural interpretation of that. You remember back in chapter 2 when Daniel told him his dream, the most private, personal thing that you can imagine would be your dreams. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar not only the meaning, but he told him the very dream. And then, of course, Hukovich forget chapter 3 from last week, the, the three men who are tied and bound and thrown into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and there's four in there and they're walking around unharmed. Then the three come out and they don't even smell like smoke. So Nebuchadnezzar has seen the mighty works of God, but here he says the, these are the mighty works of God, not that I saw, not that were enacted against me, but these were done for me. So this is a different type of mighty work that he's going to describe. This is done for him, this sign and wonders. And then verse 3 is a little bit of a poetic section. In fact, the whole chapter is very poetic. You might have in your edition of the Bible that that verse 3 sort of set aside in poetic form. Really, the whole chapter could be set aside in that same way because it's very poetic. But verse 3, How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. So here He's going to begin this proclamation and and He begins by saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 4, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So He begins by saying, Here was the setting. I was at ease. I'm an old 
elderly sort of fellow. I've built this big kingdom and now I'm sort of enjoying my kingdom retirement. So he's at ease as God is going to come and interact with him in such a powerful way, which reminds us that isn't this often how God comes to us when God deals with us, isn't it often that he comes to us at the least expecting moment? Nebuchadnezzar does not expect to encounter God at this point in his life. He's encountered him before, but he comes when he is the least expecting him. He describes himself as old and prosperous. Now that word prospering, it's a good translation. That's what it means. But in the Aramaic, it's a word that means specifically not just prospering as though anything might prosper, but it's a word that specifically means prosper or flourish in the context of a tree. We don't have an equivalent word in our language. I tried to think of something that was close, maybe blossoming or something like that, but you can use that for anything. But but this word means prospering, but it's specifically in the context of a prospering, growing, blossoming tree, which is interesting because the whole vision is the vision of a tree. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree in the vision, and he describes himself immediately by being this prospering, sort of prospering tree, uh, at ease in my house, in my palace. And here he is in this comfort of his palace, this comfortable period of his life. And now God comes to him, reminds us, of course, of of Jesus' parable of the man who has this bumper crop and he puts it in his barns and everything. And Jesus is the point of the whole story is that Jesus says, you fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. This is exactly the last moment that you thought that this would happen. So he's all content and happy, and God's about to change all this. God is about to interact with him, and he's about to bring trouble into the waters of Daniel's life because that is consistently how God works with people. When God wants to do a deep work in our hearts, isn't it often that he will trouble the waters of our heart or trouble the waters of our life in order to do His deeper work in our heart. Sometimes He does that by bringing some tragedy into our life. Sometimes He does that by allowing some trial into our life. Sometimes He does that by showing us someone in our life who is on the same path of sinfulness as us, yet they're further down the road. He might show us somebody in our life who has taken a sin similar to ours to a greater degree in their life, and He can show us where that path will take us, and it'll startle us and alarm us and get our attention in that sort of way. Kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge. You remember the Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, how he was shown where the path of his life was going to take him? That's what God can do in our life, and that's what He often does. He brings these situations, these unpleasant, these painful, these difficult situations into our life Because that is the context in which we as fallen, prideful, sinful, self-centered human beings, that's the context in which we become willing to examine our heart in hard ways. So God is going to do this troubling work in Nebuchadnezzar's life in order to create the scenario in which for him to do the work in Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he is seeking. In the same way in your life, when trouble, crises come into your life, oftentimes that's a signal for us that God is preparing to do a deeper work into our heart. And so now here comes the troubled water. As I lay in bed and the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree. So here's the first decree of the chapter. There will be three decrees. The first is by Nebuchadnezzar. The second will be by the angel of the dream. And the last will be by God himself. So Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree, first of all. And the decree is that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me the interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. So this is a familiar scene, isn't it? We visited this all back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it seems like the same thing played out. There was this disturbing dream, this alarming dream. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know the interpretation, so he called everybody in. But in that case, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was on the sly. He did not want to be taken in by this cut and paste kind of interpretation by these in, by these dream interpreters. So instead, he put them to the challenge. He said, in order for me to know that you really are in touch with the gods and that you really do have an insight into what this dream means, you tell me the dream too. Of course, nobody could. And so then he declares everybody's going to be killed. But then Daniel hears of this and he says, well, let me come and give this interpretation of the dream or let me seek my God Let me seek the counsel of God and perhaps give the interpretation of the dream. So here the same sort of scenario, but here Nebuchadnezzar doesn't withhold the dream itself. I get that to mean kind of a sense of desperation. I think Nebuchadnezzar is even more disturbed by this dream than he was the dream in chapter 2. And so I think that perhaps he's more desperate to hear some revelation about the meaning of this dream. So now, again, verse 8, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to say this about six times. He's going to remind everybody in the story that Belteshazzar is who Daniel has been renamed to be. Daniel, again, never seems to embrace this Babylonian identity of Belteshazzar. Instead, he continues to live his life as the Hebrew Daniel. The name Belteshazzar being a name that gives honor to a Babylonian god, the god of Marduk. But instead, Daniel retains his Hebrew identity with Daniel, his name there being a name that gives honor to the living God. But Nebuchadnezzar is going to remind through the passage, oh, you're Belteshazzar now. And I think that what's behind that is Nebuchadnezzar is a bit intimidated by Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar really needs Daniel. He's desperate for the answer to this dream, yet... He's also in a position where he doesn't want to be overly beholden to Daniel. So it's almost like he wants to remind him through the passage, hey, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the king, you're still the servant, you're still Belteshazzar, I still gave you this new name. So at last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So at the very end, the last one that's consulted once again is Daniel. Everybody was asked before Daniel. Nobody could give the interpretation of the dream. And yet Daniel, once again, was the last one to be asked, why did Nebuchadnezzar learn his lesson in chapter 2? Why do we have to go through the same thing here in chapter 4 and Daniel being the, the last resort to be consulted? Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar understand from chapter 2, or for that matter, from chapter 1, when he realized that Daniel was gifted, he said, 10 times more than any of the other dream interpreters? Why is Daniel now once again the last one to be consulted? And I think the reason for this is because Daniel's going to tell him the truth and that truth is going to be convicting and Nebuchadnezzar knows it. I think that Nebuchadnezzar now has known Daniel for 30 years and he's known that Daniel tells him the truth and that truth is convicting to him. And the truth that is convicting is the last truth that's often consulted, is it not? You have people like that in your life that you know will tell you the truth and they'll tell it to you straight and oftentimes they'll tell it to you in a convicting manner and sometimes they also are the last ones to consult. Isn't that the way it is? We see that testimony in Scripture as well. 
You might remember the story from 1 Kings chapter 22. There's this king of Israel named Jehoshaphat. And he had surrounding him all these false prophets. And the false prophets, as the story tells us, would always tell Jehoshaphat just what he wanted to hear. That was their job security. And so Jehoshaphat wanted to go up to war. So he asked all his false prophets to tell him, will he be successful if he goes up to war? And of course, they all tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Yes, you'll be successful. But then in the land, there was this one true prophet named Micaiah. And Micaiah would always tell him the truth and would never withhold the truth of God from him. And so therefore, he was convicting to Jehoshaphat. And so Jehoshaphat is preparing to go to war. All his false prophets tell him, yes, go up, you'll be victorious. And then he calls in Micah. And Micah comes in, there's this scene before he goes in to see Jehoshaphat. And Micaiah is told, everybody else has, has told him that he's going to be victorious. If you know it's good for you, you'll tell him the same thing. And so Micaiah goes in there and he sort of sarcastically tells him, oh yes, oh king, you're going to be gloriously victorious. And Jehoshaphat sees through it and says, no, tell me the truth. And he tells him, no, just the opposite. And then we read in verse 18, 1 Kings chapter 22, Jehoshaphat declares, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? That's the case because Micaiah will always tell him the truth and that truth is convicting. This is the same story between John the baptizer and Herod. Remember how John the baptizer was the one who would tell Herod, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. The same thing with Paul and Felix, how Paul was the one who would say to Felix and his wife Drusilla, it is not right for you to be in this incestuous relationship. The same thing with Elijah and Ahab, how Ahab was the one who would, he would always hear from Elijah the truth straight from God. And so therefore it was convicting for him. This is the scenario that we see, I think, between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel is a man who's going to tell him the truth and he desperately wants to know, I think, some comforting truth about this dream. And so he's seeking others before Daniel. We see the same sort of thing played out today, don't we? Isn't, isn't this an age in which we live that's exactly what Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 4? When he says there's going to come a time when people are going to have these itching ears. They won't endure sound doctrine, as Paul says, but instead they will seek people who will tell them what they want to hear. And is that not exactly what we see going on in our society today? Don't we see those individuals, those churches, those public speakers whose message is basically just uplifting, encouraging, motivating, man-centered, humanistic. Don't we see that those are the most popular ones? And don't we see that those in our society who preach the straightforward truth of God's Word when it's convicting, don't we see that they are the ones who consulted last? Our fallen human nature gravitates to the message that is motivating and uplifting. And so often God's Word is that way. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God pierces into our heart and tells us of who we are and tells us of the convicting message of God and oftentimes That is the last thing that we want to consult. And this is exactly, I think, what we see going on in the story of Nebuchadnezzar here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website, 
where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth that transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.